Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ron Wolf. We're at the Linfield University campus in McMinnville. It's July 10th, 2020. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, what, why the food and beverage industry? What got you in, interested in food and beverage? Well, basically, when I turned 15, the first job I could get was in a restaurant. Started working in the dish pits and worked my way within a year. Actually, due to the fact I cut off the end of my finger doing some of my prep work, I had to not work around food for a while in the back. And I became a busser and then I became a waiter by the time I was 16. I was uh, waiting tables at the Branding Iron Steakhouse in Eugene, Oregon, which was the original Mesquite um, uh, Steakhouse. We used to put, in the morning when I go in, put 100 pounds of Mesquite on the old embers, let it rip, and then at five o'clock before dinner, put another 100 pounds on. So we were burning a lot of coals and serving a lot of beef. At that time, we only had three wines on the list. I couldn't serve them. I had to give the order to a cocktail waitress, but they were Lancers Blanc, Rosé, and Red. And since the Blanc was bubbly, it served as champagne. (laughs) That was uh, Eugene, Oregon in 1965, 66. There was no such thing as Oregon wine, unless you went to Salem, went to Honeywood, which even if you're not old enough, kids like to give it a whirl, and if you're lucky, they'd pour you the little paper cups of fruit wines. It's worth the trip off the highway. And of course, a perennial favorite for anyone under 21 was Henry Henry, who was out of Oregon City, and he made rhubarb wine and loganberry wine, and didn't matter how old you were, if you could put the money on the, on the table, he'd sell you a, a jug of wine. <laughs> so that's how I got in the wine industry. <laughs> Lancers from Portugal and Honeywood and Henry Henry's. So it wasn't for quite a few years until the 70s that you could actually find Oregon wine. But um, growing up, my dad had me stop working in restaurants when I went to college because he said don't squander a college education while pursuing, you know, the the nightlife of Mm -hmm. being a restaurant worker. So I went to University of Oregon, graduated in class of 72. And upon graduation, um, I decided that um, I wanted to be a brewer rather than a psychologist because my degree is in psychology. So I scoured <laughs> the Northwest. There was nothing, no one that would hire. There was only one brewery that uh, wasn't union in America, and that was Anchor Steam Beer in San Francisco. So I hitchhiked down to San Francisco well, three times, and they finally hired me. I went to work for Fritz Maytag back in 1976, and I was, by the time I had worked there for three months, I was the assistant brewer, and I brewed Anchor Steam Beer in 76, 77, and it was the only microbrewery in America. And um, so, 
my wife and I had our first child in San Francisco. It was a home birth and it was illegal. They said, you can't do that. You'd be in trouble. It's against the law. So we packed up and moved back to Oregon where it was legal to have our second child and that's where Jasmine was born on our front room couch. But I went over to the uh, distributor of Anchor Steam Beer at the time and I said, I made it, I can sell it. And he said, this is 1977, to sell wine, to sell beer, you must know wine. And at that point I thought, I've only had Lancers, <laughs> Matus, Henry Henry's, and Oak, uh, actually Oak Knoll at that time too, because mm -hmm. they were open for, they were the first vinifera winery, that and Charles Curry that went to in 75. So I had to pursue wine, uh, courses in wine, which were only available at that time in the early 70s um, to late 70s at Harris Wine Cellars in Portland. And um, they had Wines of the World, a 10-week course. Uh, so I took a 10-week course and I thought, now I can go down and get that job for the distributor of Anchor Steam Beer and get back in the beer industry. But I thought, this, this wine's very interesting and you can't learn everything in 10 weeks. I think I should pursue it a little bit further. And um, my last day of class, I saw a sign on a window, said, waiter wanted. And I thought, okay, I'm that guy. <laughs> I'll go there. I haven't been a waiter in 10 years, but I can definitely, you know, fill in. And um, I went back. Uh, well, I cut my beard because I had grown a beard for, I had grown facial hair for about 10 years, and plus I'd grown my hair for a long time too. So cut my hair, cut my beard, went in, got the job. And um, within the month, they asked me if I'd be the manager. And I said, okay. What's the, what are the responsibilities? You open, you close, you drop the bank, you seat everyone, and if there's too much business for people, you take it. Okay, we'll do it. And um, then they said, oh yeah, and you've got to write the wine list. I thought, oh boy, this is where it gets interesting. So I basically started doing tastings after, after work, uh, three days a week. We'd, we'd pool our money, all the waiters You'd buy a bottle for a dollar over cost because that's what the, the family and plus the family was very good the Plainfields um, they had a restaurant in Portland for about 20 years if not never, not in the business anymore but um, they had a hundred percent markup which is unheard of in the city and so when my first wine list came up we had um, a good selection great prices about half of what you'd pay at most restaurants and about one quarter of what you pay at the Benson or the big hotels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Matt Kramer at the time was the uh, food writer for the Oregonian and he wrote this glowing review of Plainfield's place saying the food was wonderful but the wine list was what to go for because it was actually affordable. It was just a little bit more than you'd pay in a grocery store. You could drink a bottle of wine right there. So all of a sudden I had a, a reputation of being very generous which was really their doing, but I took the credit for it <laughs> and uh, moved on. Had a distributor offer me a job because he was importing beer at the time and wanted me to work in the beer and wine. And so I went to work for him for one year and also he was a distiller, so we had a, he had a distil distillation, uh, 
beer and wine, and he later sold to the McMinimums the beer and wine license and stuck with the distilled spirits. Um, at that point, I decided, well, that's when St. Helens blew up, and I was so allergic to the volcanic ash, my doctor told me that it'd be better to move further from the mountain, so either eastern Oregon or to the coast. The only place that appealed to me was Salishan Lodge. And so I went there with my new little 10-week ten, ten diploma from the Wine Academy, a review of the wine list I'd written, and um, met with Phil DeVito. And I only made one resume. It was all pointed towards that place, and he hired me on the spot. Within two weeks, I was um, over there. The day I unpacked, um, brought the family over and unpacked, is the last time St. Helens blew. <laughs> so I had to move the whole family from Portland, where we owned a house, sold it, to pack up to go to Salishan. And, it, and there was a little light dusting on the car that day. Never had another. So I was, in, I was committed to Salishan, and Phil was committed to having the Wine Spectator Grand Award, which was just announced in 1980. So he said he was the, uh, the French specialist, and he was, knew it, almost every other person in California, so I could concentrate on Oregon and Washington. So, and plus, nobody delivered at the coast, except for Henny Hensdale was the only distributor at the time that would deliver um, wine to the Oregon coast. So we used to have to make a, a weekly run into Portland uh, and stopping in, usually, uh, it was Dundee at the time, Dickie Rath or, you know, McMinnville for David Lett. Uh, David Adelsheim, I'd always get lost trying to find Calkins Lane. I don't know how many times um, I went and picked up wine and would get totally spun around. But anyway, so I got to know the winemakers in that respect that not only was I ordering the wine, but I'd have to go and taste it and, you know, think of the future, but also pick up what we had on the list. Mm -hmm. And we developed the list from 325 wines in 1980 to 1,350 wines in 1982. And uh, that's when um, the Spectator gave us the grand award. And um, from there, stayed at Salishan for two more years, but um, John Gray had decided that he was going to sell the, the, the property because it was costing him more money than he was making, and he was taking money out of his personal finances to support the, uh, the, the quality standards of the lodge, because we were five star, five diamond, Wine Spectator Grand Award, and there was no way to make money. Mm -hmm. um, you, could, you could keep burning it, but you can't ever replace it. So he started to sell it, and uh, at that point, Alex Murphy, who was our general manager for 18 years at Salishan, had gone over and worked for the Stevensons in Portland, and they had bought and were renovating the Heathman Hotel. And at that time, they could have taken um, the money they spent and tore down the hotel, rebuilt it, and still had 10 million in the bank. But they they spent a lot of money to rebuild and re that building. And um, so I, I took over the wine list. Basically, I was hired. I was employee number six. Um, and I was driving over from Salishan over uh, to help develop the list. But since I didn't technically work for them at that time, uh, Karen Hensdale from Henny Hensdale, a distributorship, actually wrote the first list. And it had 187 wines on it. So that was very doable and um, $27,000 in inventory. 
and I was told I could take it up to $35,000 and that we could go as high as 300 wines because that's what we were basically built for. And uh, in those days, it was um, still a fairly new industry, but there was a lot of buzz about Oregon wines because in the 80s is when they started to take off after the windows of the world tasting where the 83s um, beat the, the French wines. Um, there were a lot of people coming and looking for those wines. And of course, David Lett's uh, Irie 75 was you know, the, the star of the show. Mm -hmm. So um, it, was a, it was a great journey at the Heathman. And what I learned at Salish and I couldn't really put into place there because it wasn't classic, it was Tournament Burnham. It was downtown next to the Symphony Hall. You had, a, you had to have your people in and out within a very limited uh, time frame where Salish and people would drive hours to get there mm -hmm. and when they'd come in they would have their mink coats or <laughs> whatever taken over to the coat room and be ushered down and Phil remembered e everyone's name. These are the before the days of the computers so there wasn't that much information out there you know and it wasn't like you could just call a number and ask a question mm -hmm. and there were only a half a dozen really texts that you could get your hands on and work with. So that was the amazing thing about Phil is that he memorized everyone's name and the favorite table and what they had had for the previous dinner and the wine and that whether they had liked it or not. This is something that's hard to find even with the computer uh, devices that help us with that information now because I've worked on those POS's. But, um, it was, it was a, an amazing time uh, and plus he also taught me not to uh, refer to someone's lady is the wife because you'd say that's not the woman he was in here the last time with so you have to be a little bit more subtle um, so those are the days where we went from that formality of the long dinner to the uh, the short dinner in the, the mid 80s is where people didn't want to dine for two hours we average time in the, at the Salishan was about two and a half hours for dinner average time at the Heathland was about 90 minutes and uh, the times changed quickly because um, the small established wineries that were making good solid wines stuck around and some of the the fly-by-nights that came in at the time just thinking they could just get lucky and didn't and uh, when the Heathman was 14 years later I had I'd worked in the wine cellar there for 14 years almost. Um, the owner died and when they put it up for sale everyone was being fired. And rather than being fired because I've had a, a long career there and never had so much as um, a complaint that I decided that I was going to move along. Mm -hmm. My general manager at that time, Pierre Zarek, who's at the Allison, had said, and you go take the master sommelier test because if you don't pass this, there will be no future for you at the Heathman. And I basically said, I don't even know what a master sommelier is. So I had to call David Lake, who was a master of wine up in uh, Prosser or wherever he was located then. And he hooked me up with Evan Goldstein down at Sterling in Napa Valley, who he was a master sommelier and they put me into the advanced test without having ever taken the preliminary. So that was, um, I, 
I failed it by very few points. I passed tasting, I passed service, but I failed theory with, with under 10 points. I think it was like five or seven points. And the head of the Master Sommeliers at the time, Barry Larvin, said, you failed the easiest part and you passed the hardest part. So come to work for me at the Rio in Las Vegas and the rest will be history. You'll be able to earn that, you know, within a year or two. Oh, wonderful. So I packed up, I gave them two weeks notice, I moved to Las Vegas and had probably one of the most miserable years of my life. It was 114 degrees when I got there, 112 were over for 12 days, um, and it was type A people everywhere, whereas I was so used to working with the you know, people that were more leisure, you know, they were in for the, the dinner, not racing to the table and back, you know, getting a getting food and beverage and then racing out to, to gamble away and having a, my budget was on at that time, um, basically feeding alcohol to the, the big gamblers. Um, they'd give me budgets, give me a, a rating and then give me a budget on how much I could take. And a seller, at the Heathman I had it when I left, uh, we had 1,100 wines on the list. We had uh, $107,000 in inventory and they had me take that down to uh, $850,000 within a certain amount of time. So I went to the Rio and they had 7,000 wines on their list and they had a $7 million inventory and 19 restaurants to write for. So it was just a whole different ball game. But the, the wine that powered that, uh, they used to, almost a pallet a day and the wine that was the, that powered that was uh, Sederholm White Zinfandel and Behringer White Zinfandel because that's what went out to the tables and to the, the slots and, and to the the rabid gambler that didn't have time to go eat. <laughs> they just wanted a little alcohol while they were gambling. But I fell out of love with that life and so ended up three and a half years in Las Vegas but only one year with any gambling involved. The other restaurants I worked at had uh, no tables, no gambling involved with the, the restaurants. So that, that pleased me more but still the temperatures did, so I, I knew I was going to return home, um, but I didn't know um, how soon or where. Um, I went on to work in San Francisco, I was a general manager of Julius Castle on Telegraph Hill. Um, opened a restaurant at the New International Airport called Restaurant Chi and Water Bar. And then when I decided I was heading home, I got an offer from Joachim Splichel, who is the owner of the Patina Group in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. to come and work for him at Pinot Blanc in uh, Napa Valley. So I went there, spent three and a half years in Napa Valley. Um, three of them at Pinot Blanc, and that's where I got my comeuppance because I was known as, well, Dan Duckhorn used to call me Mr. Pinot because anytime they had a Pinot question, they'd call me. <laughs> and I would give him my best answer. And actually they had, when he was starting Paradox, which was, not Paradox, um, GoldenEye, which was his Pinot Noir um, house up in Mendocino. He basically wanted 12 Pinots that were uh, the top rated Pinots in um, The Spectator. And I told him I had all 12, but I couldn't sell him more than eight of them, but I'd give him four substitutes, which were better than the ones that he wanted, but I had in stock and from the same wineries. So I was able to 
supply him with his tastings um, for the group when they were trying to determine what Oregon brought to the table and how they were going to counter with their Mendocino Pinot brand. Um, and so he um, and Tony Biaggi, who was just winemaker at the time, decided I was Mr. Pinot, and that became my my moniker down there because everything was Cabernet. And if you were Pinot, you were Russian River, but I was in Napa, and so my Pinot list had Russian River, Carneros, Santa Rita Hills, Santa Maria, um, and lots of Oregon. Mm -hmm. And nobody objected to Napa, but if I had to try to do that in Sonoma, it would have been a different situation. Mm -hmm. So I once again, again got a, a good reputation, just happened chance. Um, and I kind of rode that. Uh, and Joachim, of course, came out in The Spectator and said that we didn't charge corkage. He meant to people in the trade. But since it was printed in The Spectator, he said that we would no longer charge corkage in Napa Valley. And you can imagine in Napa Valley in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, not charging corkage at a hustle-bustle business. And uh, once again, I got a reputation for being <laughs> magnanimous and very generous mm -hmm. to the customer. And when we looked at the paperwork after two years, we had still had the same amount of wine sales. And we just didn't have that, that, that corkage amount that went on the bottom line to kind of mm -hmm. uh, ease the pain when you don't sell your own wines. But we kept the tables busy. So anyway, um, I left Pinot Blanc and went to work at Brandon's Grill in Calistoga, and there I worked with a young chef, Alan Root, who owns The Painted Lady. So when Alan actually moved up here and started The Painted Lady, that's when he started calling me and gave me the opportunity to move back home. He said, you know, you don't belong in... At that point, I had gone back to Las Vegas since working at Joe Stone Crab um, in the, the Forum at Caesar's Palace. and. Uh, I was making more money than I'd ever made in the restaurant industry, but he said, but you're not happy. You'll be much happier in Oregon. He was right. You know, I mean, I moved back. I'd never regretted it and never <laughs> made as much money as I had made in Las Vegas, but also I was where I belonged. And I worked for Allen for about a year and a half, and then I was offered a position at a a restaurant that went under real quickly, Lucier, which we had a million dollar inventory. And um, it was, it, it opened at the wrong time because th that was my last big restaurant love. Because um, the Dustin Group, uh, who owns uh, the Old Spaghetti Factory, uh, Chris Dustin on his father, Gus's deathbed, basically said, Dad, you always wanted a fancy restaurant, we're gonna open it. And he put everything into it, and then the stock market crashed in 2008, and the rest is history. They, we were serving 100, 150 covers a day, and it went down to 25, 30, and all the Christmas parties canceled. And um, it went by the by and by. Um, I took another job for a while, working for Tony Dam Dames, uh, who's, um, had Noisette, which was a fine dining, uh, seven-course meal uh, dining room. But I was just running out of rope. I was just getting tired of running around. Plus, with his menu of seven courses, you had to announce to every course with everything on every plate to every table. And it got old. My voice started giving out. 
and my, my lovely wife uh, called me and said, there's a wine distributor that needs um, salespeople. And I said, well, that, that's interesting. She said, I think you know the guy. And I had, I had known him since he opened his wine company. And I called him and he said, put me on board. And I worked almost eight years for them, just retired when my wife did uh, this in the last few months, actually end of January. Mm -hmm. 2020. Uh, so spent 78 was my first wine list I wrote. Um, 2010 was the last, but in the between I, I wrote lists and I had them. Well, we had to do them seasonally you know, for all the years at the Heathman, uh, Salisham. We'd we'd switch pages, but once a year we'd do a, a full rollover. Because Salishan, we had, it was about a 50-page wine list. I don't know if you've gotten your hands on it, but it had depth, and it had breadth, and it had high prices, too. <laughs> so, and that was the nice thing. The Stevenson's told me that I didn't have to charge that much. You'd rather turn two bottles than sit on one. So, um, did a, a, a good, history in the restaurant trade and and uh, like I say 78 to 2010 pretty much writing lists it's amazing yeah that's an amazing career tell me about writing a wine list I'm curious especially from start to finish uh, when you first made one to when you last made one what well, changed about how you did it essentially in the beginning uh, when I wrote my first I kept the same philosophy throughout I thought wine is intimidating to a lot of people and it's, it's an expense that can be avoided. You can always have a cocktail or a beer, and it can be intimidating, especially if there are so many choices. So you have to you have to basically dumb it down so that everyone can understand it. And then when you do explain it, it's easier to to, to get the picture. And uh, I never try to make the list that um, complicated. Uh, actually, uh, even in the end. At Lucier, I had less than one quarter of the wines on the list because there was just too much to absorb. They said that it took over 20 minutes to read the wine list at Salishan when the, uh, the time came. It was almost an hour of just getting through the wine list, the, the menu, and getting everything started if you spent that much time. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing is that Phil would walk right to the table, <laughs> and what are you having? Oh, let me suggest this. And what is the wine? Oh, I have these selections. So I always try to categorize as to where the location is, what the varietal is, and then um, try to do it by cost so people don't have to look, you know, at the, they, they can see a graduated mm -hmm. cost and mm -hmm. see if they're in that $100 a bottle mood or if they're in a $25 a bottle. And I tried to keep, um, in the beginning, I tried to keep 10% of the list at $10 or under. And later in life, it became harder. It became 10% to have $20 and under. And I was always successful at that because when you get too much expensive, top-heavy wine in there, it just, all of a sudden, people will just shut off. They won't even look or they won't want to explore. Mm -hmm. But if you can say, well, what is the, what is the varietal you're looking for? What is the area? Then you you can focus them on that area and that varietal because they'd be pretty well there. Um, it, it did get more intensive when the AVAs became a big deal and everyone was scan, sc scrambling, trying to you know 
highlight that if it was from Eola Hills or it was from the Dundee Hills or exactly where they were from. And then it, it started getting a little too complicated again. So I started putting little sidebars, mm -hmm. you know, Pinot Noir, Eola Hills, Vintage, Price. And give as much information on one line. But yeah, just keep it simple. That's the same as any sales job. The more complicated you make it, the more complicated it becomes. You mentioned you mentioned Phil and, and, and you, you before the before we were started the interview here. You're talking about kind of an, an instant kinship with Phil. Oh I'm, yeah. I'm curious what you took away from you mentioned the struggle from kind of implementing what you learned at Salishan into the Heathman because they were such different places. Mm -hmm. But what did you take away as you were sort of developing a wine making or wine list and uh, hospitality uh, philosophy? Well, it was with Phil. There was like a European training to this too because I had to work. I had to work as a a back waiter for old Europeans. We had a, a gentleman named Freddy Krueger, who was actually, uh, when Salishan opened, I believe it was 67, he moved to the Oregon coast. He was born in 1900, and he was on, um, and he worked in um, cruise ships from the time he was like 10 years old till the time he got put on Hitler's blacklist. If he was ever to be apprehended, he would be put to Auschwitz or whatever. He was on the, the blacklist. So he moved to uh, Chicago, uh, worked in the pump room. Um, he worked, he was at La Quinta in uh, Palm Springs um, when he retired at 65 years of age and bought a property on the Salmon River. And uh, that was the year that Salishan was gonna open and Freddie went up to check it out. They said, wow, we needed an elderly gentleman like you to, you know, kind of run the, the floor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he um, basically said, okay, only work four days a week, you know, and I, he would sit down with Phil after work and have a Heineken beer and a plate of dinner. And it was a very elegant, eloquent, they were old world, old school. And you had to work with them, you had to learn how to cook. You had to learn not only your ingredients, but how to, because we cooked table side, we wore tuxedos. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then you had to know the pairings on the wine to those foods. And Phil was very good at that. On Friday night, which we were all trying to race out the door to go to Tupp's Tavern and have a, a couple of <laughs> pictures of beer, because that's before they served you pints. Um, <clears throat> um, Phil would say, oh, we're gonna have a tasting upstairs. I hope you'll uh, take the time to set it up for me. And I'd go, Phil, I'm off the clock, he goes. And I'm making the schedule for next week. Let's see now. Did you want a five-day schedule or four or three? <laughs> five days as always, Phil. Okay, and set it up. Everyone, you know, and let everyone know they're going to sit in. It won't take more than an hour. So we'd always have a, an assortment of wine set up, often blind, um, and then often you'd have the chefs send up plates of food. You say, okay, so this is Pinot Noir. Here we have it from France. Here we have it from California. Here we have them from Oregon, and here we have it from somewhere else. What's the same, what's different? And then, you know, we started extrapolating that there was more in common of the Oregon and French than there was the Oregon and California, or the somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and we started seeing that certain wines benefited the food, and certain wines kind of depreciated uh, the quality of that dish. And um, so it was really showing you how the, the alchemy of, you know, putting a, a wine and food together. 
and there was a lot of formal training and things were very very um, on the floor things well the first night that I was standing kind of watching rather than getting into it Phil was down on the corner table uh, the very corner of the sea deck which was the best view in the house and so I knew they must be really really good customers to get that table and I placed my arms like this and I was talking to the guy next to me and he goes oh put your arms down right now I go why he goes you don't want to know he says because when Phil looks around and sees that he's gonna stop everything and come and talk to you I said what do you mean uh oh it's too late he has eyes in the back of his head Phil turn around he said to the people I'll be right back walked straight up to me and said I'm sit, sitting there and he goes do you know what you're doing I said mm, I'm s relaxing he says, no <laughs> that's the chieftain's pose and that's very judgmental and you can't stand at the top of the, the deck and look down on everyone with your arms crossed he says your arms will go at your side in the front or behind you but never up top yes sir <laughs> won't do that again I worked for I actually worked for him for exactly four years and I was you know because I started on September 15th and my last day there was on September 14th four years later mm -hmm. and I learned a lot um, and I learned a lot of that wasn't applicable to Turnham and Burnham houses because even at 90 minutes we were trying to get down to 60 minutes um, sure. at the Heathman because the symphony crowd was so demanding. They, they wanted to come late and leave early, but it's hard to process that many people that quickly. So, um, see now, I probably got off the subject. No, that's perfect. Okay. I'm, I'm sort of curious about starting at a place like Salishan and then working at so many other places. Oh yeah. How, do you how does your hospitality philosophy develop working with so much, such different clientele in such different places? Well, it, the thing is, hospitality is hospitality, period. I mean, it's the industry is built around being friendly and, and helpful and informative. But, um, and that's where I fit in best is restaurants which might be considered fine dining because they were a little bit more refined. Because um, I did work in a couple of places that were really fast paced and really didn't care about. Um, the, the total quality of the experience. One of the groups I worked for, we were never to ask, how is everything? Because that would indicate that maybe something was wrong and that could take you off your track. Um, so uh, there's degrees of hospitality, but in essence, it's all about just making people feel at home. And so that was one of my secret powers was just making a good first impression and uh, making people feel at home and at ease and then establishing right away what is it you want out of this evening oh you're going to you're going to the show oh you're going to the airport oh you're meeting with friends oh meeting with friends you probably want to sit back and relax yes oh what time's the show well, now I know. So you, you have to pace it. That way you can pick up your speed or mm -hmm. leave people alone. And another 
I was always inobtrusive. I had um, customers that liked the fact that I wasn't always intruding and popping in, that I would get the business done. Um, the new houses that owned the Oregonian would stay with us. They were exactly from, they sit at five o'clock and they were out at six o'clock, exactly. So at five o'clock I knew I better get that drink order at 5.05 and get the down at 5.10 so I can get the first part of the order in because it's to get three courses in within an hour is nearly impossible, especially if they're doing business. Mm -hmm. And the drinks were very important. So then they weren't wine drinkers, they were cocktail drinkers. So I had everyone's cocktails memorized. So when they would come in with the two new houses and the Stickles and whoever else was with them, because it'd be a six top, the publishers, the owners, and two other people. And um, I'd have four of their drinks already memorized. I'd just say the same, the same, same. What would you like? What would you like? And then have it up there, take that first order, and it's a juggling act. And they didn't want that hospitality that was um, friendly or intrusive. They, mm -hmm. they wanted you standing 10 feet away. But if you saw something that was in need, you closed the gap to care that that part of the business. Um, and quite honestly, a lot of that doesn't exist in <laughs> my year in San Francisco, two different restaurants, um, Las Vegas, hardly, hardly at all. Mm -hmm. Napa Valley, not much. Mm -hmm. it's, it's tourism there. Um, so what I learned from Phil was, was the rule book, and then what I learned from other people is how to break it. <laughs> because um, there aren't that many people looking for the French laundry, you know, 30 small plates, you know, four hours, mm -hmm. um, and who can afford it? But, um, it served me well. It just I got to be kind of a dinosaur, you know. The younger people that I worked with in the end, one of the reasons that I decided that I didn't belong in the restaurant trade anymore is I just didn't fit that that mold or what what they what they were aiming for, and that's really speed, efficiency, accuracy, which are all good, but the hospitality had gone more to the back burner. Mm -hmm. So tell me about uh, kind of growing up in Oregon alongside the wine industry. You talked about the, the mid-80s as it was sort of, sort of starting to become a, a buzz. Tell me about your, your, your first impressions of Oregon wine that you can remember when, huh. you, when you tasted it yeah. and, and sort of watching it grow. Well, the first Oregon wines I tried were, like I said, Henry Henry's hmm. rhubarb or his Loganberry wine, but um, then at Honey or at Oak Knoll, and this is in 1975 when we went there, they had like three berry wines and two vinifero wines. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't really a great start, but that was on the way to Charles Curry, and that's where I met David Wirtz, who's his winemaker at the time. Mm -hmm. And actually, I bought his 73 Golden Cluster because that was the first 
Oregon wine that just totally blew me away. And actually in 83, when I was working with Phil, we had a, um, we used to put on at my house um, once a year, Tom Brosey, who worked in the wine cellar with me, um, and Phil and I would all put two bottles of wine in. And so we'd have six bottles and then we'd get about a half a dozen people and we'd all sit around and we'd taste them. And this one year, Phil brought a Domaine Romani Conti Eschazo, 1973. <laughs> and he also brought, and I can't recall exactly, he brought Eschazo from France and he brought um, a California, I think it's probably Chalone or something like that at the time. And I brought this Golden Cluster from Curry. But in the end, it was the Eschazo and the Golden Cluster that were the, the, the top two. And I, I liked the Golden Cluster at the time because I didn't get the whole concept of terroir as much as I do now, how Eschazo has a specific um, flavor you're looking for. I just knew that the, the Oregon, uh, the, the Charles Curry one had a lot more body and richness and, and it was fuller. Mm -hmm. uh, but. And Phil, of course, enjoyed the Eschazo most, but he had, uh, he had the Eschazo budget at the time, <laughs> I didn't. Um, yeah, and a lot of the, the wineries in those days didn't have much, not much hospitality. And um, I used to tell people when they'd come in, they'd go, so you're the Oregon guy that buys Oregon wine? i go, yeah. I said, uh, do you like dogs? Yeah, well, if you don't like, if you go up here and if the dog doesn't like it, you're not getting in, you know, because that's the way it was, mom pawing the dog. And it was very simple, you know, you drive up somewhere, someone come walking out, oh, someone here, let's go over and see what we got open. And it, times have changed, <laughs> times have changed. Um, at, at what point do you remember them starting to change? What point do you remember hospitality becoming part of the wine industry? The late 80s, mm -hmm. uh, even in the, the mid 80s, because at that point I was in Portland and everyone, Henny Hinsdale was carrying most of, and Lemma, you know, two names of the past. Because the distributorships, it's funny, because now in Portland you have almost 100 distributors. In the day you had four, mm -hmm. you know, in the beginning. Alcy mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Giusti, uh, Frank Roberti, um, La France, and Mike McClaskey. And uh, those are the only four I can recall right off the top. And each of those has, you know, turned over. Lemma went out of business a couple of years ago, and that's the last of them to, to hang in there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, you, you'd have a lot of Oregon wines, and then you'd go, okay, uh, can I come to the winery? <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> come to the winery. What, what day are you coming? What time? And it would be a, pretty much a private tasting. It wasn't until the late 80s people started staffing it, putting a room in and having a lineup and mm -hmm. charging, you know. Maybe even then, I don't think there's much, there weren't many people charging back in the 80s. But then there wasn't a lot of fresh wine being opened. You know, people feel, felt that if you're driving there that, that far, you should be drinking for free. <laughs> and you shouldn't have like a, a quarter ounce taster, you know, give you a, little glass not a big glass as you as you saw that part of the industry start to open up what were some of the places that impressed you either in terms of wine quality or in terms of hospitality quality well 
it's that third wave of people. The first wave, I mean, like David Adelsheim was working at La Molette as a sommelier for Horstenegger back when I wrote my first wine list. And um, basically, David let Papa Pino, he was, he was kind of hard to get to know. Um, and you had to go all the way out to the turkey uh, processing plant to taste his wine. And then uh, Fred Arterberry was next door at that time. That was a very sad chapter in our history. And, um, let's see, Dick Erath, he had, yeah, he's one of the first people that kind of went up there and, and gave you something to drive all the way up the hill for. Um, because David Adelsheim, it took a while before there was anything there. Then that second wave came in, you know, guys like Gary Andrus. And when he did Archery Summit, I mean, Gary was just like, phew, he was, he was a ball of energy. I just <laughs> love that guy. And uh, his, I've known the whole family, his wife, his daughters. Um, <clears throat> he put in hospitality. Um, I'm trying to think of. Mostly it was little events for in the trade. I mean, Ken Wright with Panther Creek and stuff, they were, when he first came in, it's funny because Ken, when he first came in uh, from California, he pulled up the Heathman and came in and pitched us the wine that he had made a Cabernet down in Monterey Peninsula somewhere and he was gonna sell it. That's what he paid, was paid for in wine to make the wine. And that's all he had right now, so he's gonna sell it. So. We tasted it and said, God, we like this. We'll buy it from you. And opened up his trunk and brought in a case. And we were his first wine by the glass account in Portland, the Heathman. And uh, I remember he's the one of the first that did hospitality events, which were for the trade, because you'd go out and you know, like work on the, uh, the sorting line. And then after four hours of work, it, they'd treat you like it had been a whole day and have a little pizza party for you. And you think, wow, that's all right. You know, we'll do four hours of. <laughs> you know, work for a nice lunch. And yeah, the, it, it took the California money coming in to really start to have hospitality in the, the sense of a, a tasting room and the wine club and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Same thing as when I was in Napa Valley that almost everyone on my staff worked at a winery in the daytime. They'd come and work at the restaurant at night. And you got to, a lot of them said that uh, the winery business in the getting people into your uh, clubs is more lucrative if you were to stick with it for a long time than being a you know service staff. Mm. Um, yeah, and so I was outside of actually the tasting room um, crowd at that time. I was in industry, mm -hmm. so when we do events like Beau Frere would do a pig roast, I think it was, you know, so you go out, Mike would be there holding court, and everyone would be fed and have a lot of wine to, to taste, but that'd be all industry. So mm -hmm. I can't really speak much to all, although when I left in 98, I came back in 2006. Um, basically, there were three times as many wineries here as when I left and half of them I had never heard of before. And that's when I started going out to see these wineries and finding out they did have tasting rooms associated with them. And 
Did you have any idea that the wine, Oregon's wine industry would, would do that? Did you have any inkling early on that that would happen? Nope. No idea. Um, I mean, I knew that the peelings were good, but the cost was so high. Mm -hmm. And that's what I always thought, that what people like and what they buy are two different things. I mean, it's not as narrow of a market now. There's so much more to offer, and there's a lot of plunk out there. Mm -hmm. But it's um, still, Pinot's one of the most expensive grapes to harvest, uh, get to the market, and, and make a living of, and have continuity, too. Probably the, the man that taught me more than anyone in the beginning was Fritz Maytag, because Fritz was heir to the Maytag fortune, but sold off all of his interest just to keep a tiny brewery alive, Anchor Steam Beer, which he bought for 50000 and sunk a million dollars a year in it for 10 years until um, when I was working for him in 76, is the first year he turned a profit. And he bought it in 66, I think. And Fritz also had a winery called York Creek Vineyard, which is the top of Spring Mountain. And um, he also had the first distillery, a micro distillery in the United States, which was in the basement of Anchor Steam Beer. And Kathy Corzin, who was the winemaker at uh, uh, Chapelet, was his winemaker for York Creek Wine. And the only account that he sold to, he sold to Fremark Abbey for a short while, but they blew a batch of his Petit Syrah from old vines and he never sold them again. So it was only to Ridge. He made his own wine. He made it in the basement of Anchor Steam Beer. He also had a distillery down there that made a Potrero gin. And Fritz said to me some time ago, he says, you know, it's funny a lot of people. He says, I'm speaking to you like this because you're one of them now. <laughs> he says, a brewer is a scientist. He says, might as well be a surgeon. Everything has to be clean, as clean as can be. You have to have the formulation just perfect because every batch of beer has to be exactly as this previous batch of beer, perpetually. Mm -hmm. If something's off, you get, you get rid of it. You can't use it with your label on it. And we know that barley changes a bit, so you have to really watch your numbers in your, in your mash tun. We know that hops year to year, it's an agricultural crop. It's going to be a little different. We're lucky in San Francisco, Hetch Hetchy water is all very clean. We, we, we have a, a great standard there. But those are the standards you need in your yeast. It has to be perpetually clean and, and free of other infections. He says, as a winemaker, they're like artists. Because every year is a new, a new blank palette. Weather gives you a different problems or different benefits in the, the vineyard. You know, the seasons are different, the weather is different, and your grapes are always going to taste different every single year. But how do you keep um, perpetuating a brand? You have to have some continuity. As he says, so you have a scientist that's keeping continuity by making the same thing every day the same way. And then you have an artist that goes in and says, and this is where I'm aiming, and this is what I've got, this is how we get there. So, and with the distillery said, we're alchemists. You know, we just take a product, we, we, we coax everything we can out of it, and we refine it as far as we can, and then we do what we do with it. And that's, so you have three ways of looking at the same um, situation of making a beverage, uh, 
that's going to be enjoyable and hopefully uh, consistent. Love it. That's amazing. So as you've as you've gotten back into Oregon wine since returning, uh, what what do you what, what do you think of the growth of the industry? What what do you do you enjoy the wines that are coming out oh, yeah. now? Are you are you a fan of the growth? Uh, oh, tell, more, tell, me, yeah. tell, me, tell me about the last fifteen years of Oregon wine from your perspective. Well, more than ever. I mean, I love it's when when I met my wife, um, she basically said, "Here comes the neighborhood." Basically, there are all these young people coming in. And I was kind of a little bit of a grumpy old man because a lot of them would be very impetuous and not very respectful and, you know, it bothered me. And she'd say, ah, just teach them what you teach them and move on. Just here comes the neighborhood. They're going to take over. You can only do so much. And when you, it's your time to sit down, there's got to be someone standing there to take care of you. And so I kept my, um, my mind was opened up by that, mm -hmm. where I didn't, mm -hmm. didn't close myself. Because I remembered at Salishan a lot of the, the old school, because we had all these old Europeans that were working there. And um, it's like when we had our first POS uh, computer to put our orders in, you know, three of the oldest Europeans just says, oh, I'm gonna have to quit, because I, I could never work with a computer. A computer will never do what I, what I do. And they were told, okay, well, that's okay. We'll, we'll replace you, um, that'll be fine. People can pick these things up, and within a year, all three of them were going, God, how did I ever do without this? All those years, this has made it so much easier for me. And you know, now if, if there's a mistake, it's your mistake. It's not saying that you handed it to this guy and it was his mistake. It's, it's definitely yours, you gotta own it. Um, Sort of think about the, the, the sort of recent Oregon wine. Yeah, I'm, well, I was just trying to think of the, my first person that I met when I came back to work for Alan and Jessica at the Painted Lady. The, the morning after my first shift, they hauled me over to J.K. Carrier, to Jim Proster's place, which is down uh, on Benjamin Road at the time where Wolves and People mm -hmm. Brewery is now. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, I've never, never heard of this J.K. Carrier, you know, and. What's, what's involved here? And we went in there, he had this art gallery of big pieces of sculpture there. And he had a blackboard set up with this gradient of 20 years and Pinot Noir and all these uh, lines that you, you judge. And he said, so every Saturday what I do is half a dozen people, we sit down and we discuss the possibility or probability of wine. And now today's discussion is how long do you age in Oregon? Pinot Noir, you know, we'll refer to them all the same, not just my wine. And then we'll differentiate because other pe people have different styles and different ways of making it. And so we started talking about it and within a half an hour and a couple of glasses of wine, we were just into it and, uh, you know, finding out what our tolerance was because not everyone has the same palate for, you know, wine. And so that was an eye-opener and I so enjoy seeing him at in every situation. Um, so he's what I, I call the third wave. I mean, the, the guys, the second wave were the John Pauls for Cameron and guys like that. Uh, I, I love them because they're very eclectic, you know, and they had, they were hardworking, they'd done their, their due diligence somewhere and, and, and come along and they were starting over. And um, that third wave, and 
they're just so many of those guys that are I just I love them dearly and I love their wines and their, their winemaking style and like I say that continuity um, well second wave was actually Doug Tennell you know he was when I met him I was up at um, uh, the guy that started what's now the, uh, the three graces that used to be called Dundee Hills uh, Winery. His name is Bauer. His last name is Bauer. It's Perry Bauer Vineyard before that. He basically sold, he was the, the broker for the PGE deal. And when he had all that money to spend on the profits, the windfall profits, he had to get something to spend it on so he could lose money quickly and not have it be taxed to death. Mm -hmm. and so, he was going to go to the Oregon coast and um, buy some property. I said, oh yeah, just like everyone else, you'll just be there forever trying to turn it. He said, why don't you just buy a piece of property in Dundee? You know, go. And there used to be a, a restaurant right across, you know, where the Arco is now mm -hmm. that everyone would stop at. It was a Hungarian guy that they had the best food. I mean, they, their blue plate special was like a four ninety five, and they, they had a, um, ribeye that would go over both ends of the plates and they had um, they had to give you the uh, potatoes on a separate plate because there was so much food and then two eggs and that's 495 so I say you know anchor your gut and then just hang around <laughs> you know drive around the neighborhood take a look and he saw the place right across the street and he drove over and started talking to them the father had just died the kids sold it to him then when he went and started to buy his uh, stock uh, root stock not all that from uh, Dick Erath Dick said I was gonna buy that I was just waiting the proper amount of time before you know after he passed I was gonna give him his proper you know morning time and then I was gonna go in and buy that property so, so I love you know you know helping you develop it so Dick helped him out anyway it was up there for dinner one night um, and it was Doug Tunnell. He had just come back from being our, our man in Baghdad. Mm -hmm. um, he was supposed to be like the heir to Walter Cronkite when he stepped aside on CBS. Doug Tunnell was going to take in his correspondent's shoes. And he came back and he was shattered. Because every night you'd see him on CBS and he'd say, as the Scud missiles approach Baghdad, this is Doug Tunnell signing mm -hmm. off for CBS. And anyway, um, he was burned out. So we're having dinner, and I'd never met the guy before. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He goes, well, um, I'm probably going to drive a tractor the rest of my life, because that's what my granddad did. And he was really happy doing that. You know, I, I'm just going to get a piece of property and farm it. You know, And I'm just seeing what um, you know, they're doing up here, You know, because I'm going to do that somewhere around here. I don't know where. And uh, so Brickhouse has always been one of my favorites, too. Like I say, Mike Etzel, Doug Tunnell, um, those guys are, <laughs> they're solid. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's Jim and Patty, uh, Patty Green. She was a, she was a hoot, another third waiver, because um, they knew how to do it. And worked for Tori Moore for years. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the newest wineries are, and I'm not, what I'm seeing now is so many California companies are coming in buying large successful wineries and then putting their stamp on it, which is all good and well. 
as long as they keep the wine flowing and at a good price and a good quality. But um, I'm referring to the, the people that have on their own, the skill of their own um, winemaking and their own finances have, you know, started to create something that is ongoing. Let's see. Oh yeah, oh, I, there's, there's another story I, I've got to share with you. This is, this is a way back when story, but. Um, uh, Dave O'Reilly used to be my salesperson for Elk Cove back in the early 80s. And David, um, when he quit, Pat and Joe actually had to deliver for a while. And one time, Dr. Campbell came in, the wine cellar on my neck was, it gets kinked up sometimes. I was going, oh God. He says, well, what's wrong? I said, oh, my neck is kind of stuck. He goes, here, here, just loosen up a bit. Loosen up. He goes, what are you going to do? He goes, let me see. Crack. How's that work? Oh, God, Dr. Campbell, that's so good. I didn't know you were a chiropractor. He goes, no, I'm, I'm a country doctor. I just got through delivering a calf this morning. And I go, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Liver a calf this morning, you crack my neck in the afternoon. My God, life is good. <laughs> So I mean, it's just such a such a small world that we live in, and so many people are just um, you know so endearing when when you meet a real person that in a, in a moment and uh, you get an honest uh, reaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm still not you know having come back in '06, I still haven't got out a lot because we you know. On the weekends, the last thing I want to do is join a crowd, mm -hmm. you know, go to a winery. And um, so usually when I go, it's by invitation and it's in the weekdays. Mm -hmm. So we don't get out a lot and I don't, I have not met uh, a good deal of the new winemaking uh, population. I will mention though, because this, this involves this campus, that um, in, the, in the day, Greg Higgins was our chef at the Heathman from mm -hmm. day one till about six years later. And then Philippe Below came in. And after this second IPNC, Greg came back to the Heathman and said, you know, guys, it's just a great event, but they don't have any skilled servers. He said, so we need to pull some staff. So they pulled four of us, Stephen Earnhardt, who's our maitre d', Scott Smith, who is the assistant maitre d', myself and Don Francis, his dad um, used to own the Francis Theaters mm -hmm. throughout the valley. Mm -hmm. And we came over uh, the third and fourth year and we're the only four major D's. And then after that at Nick's, um, we were sitting there and David Lett was asking, God, you guys, how, how can you do that in your regular jobs? We go, it burns us out. We need, we need some help. You know, we need to get some more people in here. And that's when it became open to more, more folks coming in from all over the United States. So I worked eight consecutive IPNCs. And then when I moved to Las Vegas, I was invited back as a guest. And, um, and when I came back to work with the Painted Lady, I worked one more year. And then I realized that I didn't know any, <laughs> anybody anymore because, you know, 10 years had passed, basically. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Uh, as you, you, you talked about, as you were kind of 
getting out of the wine, out of the restaurant industry, talk to kind of about sort of feeling like a dinosaur, like like the the things you had had been taught were not really interest of, in, of interest to people anymore in terms of the hospitality. I'm curious as you look ahead for for Oregon's future, uh, restaurant and wine. What what do you see? Uh, what 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 are the biggest changes, and, and what are we seeing looking ahead? With the COVID uh, nineteen, I'm I'm seeing a whole different industry evolving, and it's I could have never forecasted the last three months of my wildest imagination. Um, so it's going to be the thing that yeah, it's it's going to be difficult. Um, and you know, people, if if you want to promote the products, you, you've got to sell for less of a margin and sell more mm -hmm. or make it more available. And what I've seen in the last uh, years in the, the industry is that things are diffusing, that everything's spreading out. You've got wine in cans, you know, you have, uh, there's so many different products now, all, all these different ciders and different types of beer. I mean, when I worked for Anchor, I thought there's corn, Mexican beer, there's rice beer, Budweiser. There's barley, which is Europe, and Anchor Steam Beer. And I never, in my wildest imagination, thought we'd have hundreds of styles uh, available. Now it's ciders, um, seltzers, ap seltzers, aperitifs, any way to get alcohol into you in a convenient fashion. So. I think it's going to be up to the restaurateurs uh, to try to educate and try to uh, urge people on, offer a good deal for a glass of a good Pinot Noir to have with a, a, a course that's your special that night. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have to bend over and not use an industry standard that, that was kind of broken anyway. I mean, two, three hundred percent markups on wine are just not sustainable. I'm not going to get people into drinking it. And even the people that can't afford it bring their own in. That's one of the things I noted when I was in San Francisco and Las Vegas and Napa Valley is that I'd see some of my customers from Portland more often there than I would in Portland because they will fly 500,000 miles, spend an exorbitant amount of money and they go out and dine and wine. But at home, when they'd come in, they'd always bring their own bottle. And even though our, you know, mm -hmm. our prices were reasonable, uh, they'd prefer just to pay corkage. Mm -hmm. So there's gotta be some sort of a shakedown for us to get back into the fine dining and fine wining, which I don't think is gonna necessarily work that way, but it would be good to somewhat offer an educational flavor profiles, you know, saying, this and this are made for each other. Try it. It's not going to break the bank. What about for you personally? Uh, freshly retired? Do you have any <laughs> any plans on the horizon? Well, after COVID, yeah. <laughs> we were going to go to Oaxaca in October, but we're not this year. Last year, well, yeah. This last year we went, we took, it was kind of our, um, bucket list tour. We wanted to take a, a riverboat tour, so we flew into Lyon and took the one-week tour down to Avignon and got out there uh, 
rental car, drove over to a Chattanooga to Pop estate that we import and distribute in the United States, and we're able to get a what what, what was the uh, the owner's little private uh, room for a week for three hundred euros. It was it was, it was cheap. It was um, so yeah. We love traveling, and actually yeah, we will get out and see more Oregon wineries too. And when, when this becomes because now that we're both retired, it doesn't matter what day we go out as long as we know where we're going. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and you know it's an exciting time, but it's it's there's no no easy answers. <laughs> I'm hoping for a vaccine. I hope things you, we get sports and group activities going. Um, but it's really kind of hard to project that. But yeah, we definitely want to travel, and yes, we definitely want to drink wine. <laughs> Not just taste it; good, we want to enjoy it. Good plans. Yeah, good plans. Because you can taste all all you want, but unless you're you know, enjoying, because some people don't really enjoy wine they just it's it's a it's something they can show off it's you know it's like having a, a fancy car parked in front of your house you know mm -hmm. um, but I think people should invest into trying things that they haven't tried and that they might not be able to try in a group mm -hmm. situation so I'm thinking as individuals, I mean, it's a golden era because we have all these apps on our phones, and our tablets, mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of educational um, television shows. So people get a lifetime of, um, of knowledge in a few minutes. Google, Google this, Google that. Mm -hmm. um, when I was studying for that master's test, I had, they gave me a study partner in San Francisco and it would cost me five to ten dollars just to f teleconference with her. And this is in 1998, you know, and she went on to become a master sommelier, by the way, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a different time. And I, I think that because there's going to be so much more um, available because we haven't stopped growing either. I mean, they're, they're planting more and more areas. We went down to Ashland and went to some new wineries. Um, it's wherever we go. I mean, the, one of the first things we do is, you know, you know, busman's holiday. You go and go find out what the new wineries are. It used to be I'd go out and try more breweries, but beer's gotten so darn expensive and it's, it's very, it's very, puts a lot of weight on you. <laughs> Not that wine won't, but I don't think we drink that, that volume of it. So looking, looking back, um, if, you, if someone were to come to you and say they wanted to get into, I mean, maybe not today, but post-COVID, wanted to get mm -hmm. into the restaurant business, yeah. wanted to get into the wine sales business, what would your advice be? What would your words of wisdom to someone be? Well, do, but you know, break, well, when I used to do, because I used to have 15 minutes of my staff's time every day before pre-shift. I mean, for, for 20 years. Um, and one of the first things that I would tell people is, uh, I've got something in my pocket right now that 
can earn me ten, twenty thousand dollars more a year than you. <laughs> and I said, if we empty out our pockets, I'll bet none of you have this. What is it? It's a wine opener. I said, the wine opener alone doesn't give you the, um, the ability to make that. But if you don't have it, you can't sell that wine. But if you have it, you've got to then start to look into, what am I opening? Why am I opening that? And whom am I opening it for? It's for an occasion, because wine shouldn't be a festive, occasional drink. It should be a part of life. We should all be enjoying wine and finding what we enjoy and how much we can budget to enjoy it because that's what it really becomes because I truly can't afford most of the wines I most enjoy but I would like to <laughs> and that's the nice thing about the restaurant trade if you're in the right place at the right time is that you can do these things and, and share I mean people people learn by sharing and I, I'd probably tell someone to go out and take a look at a working in a t tasting room and you know learn learn the ropes from that end because the the lower you start you learn more on the way up and tasting room gives you opportunity um, to broaden your own horizons without a great deal of expense and um, then even if that's just part of your hobby you know rather than spending you know $30 a week on pints of beer at the, the local watering hole, spend that in a couple of tasting rooms and you know, get some information that would help you move forward. Because the industry is always going to be there. It's just going to be scaled back or it's going to be um, spaced out. <laughs> Not sure exactly what to think, but it's never going to be the same. But information is something that you have to work on yourself because it's funny when you sit there and you do lineups for people, you'll find that probably half of the people don't even listen to you if you were to question them afterwards. And half do, and then half of them want to move on. And so even if you can just get one or two people into kind of um, altering their, their course in life mm -hmm. uh, as a way to kind of fulfill your destiny, if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, that's all the questions that I have for right. you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything, <laughs> anything we didn't cover? I don't know. No, I just, uh, I think we covered pretty much everything. All right. I, have, I, I had notes, but it's mostly on names that aren't <laughs> commonly known sure, and sure. available, but. Sure. I appreciate it. Well, well mm -hmm. thank you so much for your oh, time welcome. today, for coming out and seeing us and sharing your stories. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. 
The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.